Greetings from American Exception. Today, we are talking about the strange rebranding of U.S. global dominance. I'm referring to woke imperialism, perhaps given its purest expression in the CIA's Miha You're Worth It ad. We're speaking with Christopher Mott, a research fellow at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. He is also the author of The Formless Empire. More recently, he wrote a paper that is the subject of today's discussion Woke Imperium, the coming confluence between social justice and neoconservatism. Christopher Mott, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, we're uh, talking about your article, Woke Imperium, uh, the Woke Imperium, and uh, this is... Something that I've been, had on my mind for a long time as well. I mean, we communicated a, a, a year ago or so for the, when I was at Covert Action uh, related to your Samantha Power piece. And this whole strange uh, liberal sort of quasi-missionary way that American foreign policy has, has sort of evolved. And this, this new article is a very important, I think, summary of some of these trends. Um, can you explain what the Woke Imperium is? Yeah, so the Woke Imperium is a uh, think tank white paper that I uh, made that we released a couple months ago, which whose purpose is to track the newest permutation of moralism used to justify, excuse, and um, expand U.S. military intervention abroad. So it's a foreign policy kind of uh, rhetorical tactic that I've been noticing for at least 10 years now, where human rights and uh, minority rights and lots of very trendy contemporary domestic political trends are weaponized uh, in much the same way that the Bush administration used to weaponize democracy promotion and some of its more uh, wing nutty uh, fan base uh, used to weaponize like Christianity promotion. Uh, it's, a, it's like the left wing version of that in a way. And I've been noticing that this trend that started about a decade ago, but was not mainstream then, has gradually become more and more powerful over the years. So I wanted to study this phenomenon. I wanted, it's a, it's a think tank piece that has like a lot of footnotes and specific references. So it's not just me like opining. It's not like feels over reels or anything. It's, it's very much grounded in actual things that are happening that I can observe and document and have been observing and document, at least in the background of my mind for, for quite some time. Although I've only, I only was working on this project for about a five month period directly, but um, uh, I always had the idea for it for a long time. And it's noticing that this is not new. The idea of weaponizing moralism for imperial expansion is definitely not new. Uh, it has been going on for a very, very long time in many societies, uh, nor do I claim that this is new. In fact, the, uh, the original, because the one place I've gotten criticism for is on this topic, like, oh, you 
are you saying this is totally new? And it's like, no, literally the first section of, of the woke Imperium is an examination of all the pre-woke versions of the same thing. And this is just yet another continuation of this ongoing trend. So that's, um, so we go through in the, in the study, we go through the various past forms of this, whether it was like the British mission to promote civilization and to stamp out the very form of slavery that they often spread in previous centuries, but then did a 180 and said, well, now we're going to expand to stop it spread. Uh, so there's stuff like that. There's a Woodrow Wilson's uh, conception of foreign policy and the American role in foreign policy, as well as William McKinley's uh, conception of kind of a, the U.S. as this uh, promoter of kind of Protestant Christian values. Uh, <clears throat> there was, although I didn't talk about it too much in the piece, uh, it's something that was implicit. There was this uh, 1970s trend um, to, in the Carter administration to move towards human rights promotion as a way to um, differentiate the U.S. from the USSR and the Cold War. And so these things have been going on. Uh, but this newest version of it is worth studying specifically in its own right, because the newest version is particularly good at immunizing itself from criticism, particularly from the left. And that's a big reason of why it looks the way that it looks. And so if the woke Imperium is a continuation of this process, but it's worth noting that it's different. And it's different because it is rooted in U.S. domestic culture war politics. And this rooting is done specifically to make it hard to criticize, because if you don't like uh, perhaps laying sanctions on a country for its treatment of minorities, then you could be implied to not like minorities or to not care about fair treatment under the law. Um, I would say that foreign and domestic policy are different for the reason that as a citizen, you theoretically at least have some level of influence over domestic policy, but you really don't over other countries' policy. So, so I think already the assumption there is a bit uh, ridiculous. But I think the idea here is also to impact American domestic discourse about foreign policy interventions and to make it look like good people, quote unquote, will support various sanctions and interventions because good people support various things domestically. And so it becomes a nice, neat little package of how to weaponize moralism. Now, I have... Um, I think that there are people that cynically design this, but I also think that there are many true believers. Anything to be effective needs true believers. Um, unfortunately, prior professional time I spent living and working in D.C. has convinced me that there's probably more true believers than I originally would want to believe <laughs> involved in this, which I think, personally speaking, like as a you know realist, <laughs> I actually find that the worst case scenario and not, not a better case scenario because it's harder to reason with those people. When I advocate for policies of realism and restraint, as I often do in a professional capacity, I, I find it much more difficult to argue with someone who thinks they're doing something that is right and correct than someone who I could show a balance sheet of cost benefit to and say, this is why this is not a good idea. So um, this, I partly wrote this because I've been noticing this process for a long time, and I've been noticing how the rhetoric around foreign affairs has changed to reflect the rhetoric that we have on domestic affairs. Uh, but I also wrote it to support my professional life, um, which is uh, to advocate for a more kind of normal, less militaristic foreign policy, because I saw 
uh, ever since I entered the think tank world, I saw that this was going to be the way that realism your strength would be critiqued. It wouldn't just be as it would have been in the Bush era. Um, oh, you know, you're a bunch of wusses. Uh, you're not strong on defense. It would be like, oh, you don't care. You're you're surrendering the world to Putin. You're surrendering the world to like like Alexander Dugin and uh, uh, Chinese conceptions of of you know cultural assimilation, and, and therefore your your worldview is is equivalent to a 1930s appeasement or something like that. And so it's. <laughs> And that has been happening. I mean, that that's how people criticize a lot of the realism and restraint movement. So I wanted to write effectively a field guide for people who wanted to advocate for a less militaristic policy on how to respond and how to understand where this critique was coming from. Because inevitably, it is coming, it has come, and it's going to intensify, if anything. Yeah, I mean, this has kind of changed the political dynamics in the as far as like the ukraine war goes it seems like some among the population you have your left wing anti-imperialist critics who are well informed and like who are who have been looking at ukraine since 2014 and you know duh, again trying to publicize the fact the the coup and the u.s hand behind that and you know warning about this but you have uh the democrats you know like trump was the right wing became more associated with like um, with a with what some version of appeasement really, and then the and people on the left of the mainstream, which is if the, the mainstream I think is entirely right wing, so I, I don't even I hesitate to call the left side of the mainstream the left of anything. But these were the ones who seem to be more. It seems like more of the people who like are 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 somewhat sympathetic to the Putin situation or the Russia situation are on the political right. And the liberals have become, um, instead of like the liberals being like kind of turned off by Bush's machismo and brutality and the kind of, you know, militarist fascism of the Cheney people, uh, they're, they're for this now. I mean, how, if the, it seems to have been, it seems to have been very successful, at least for the mainstream of the culture and really befuddling people's sense making when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, have you, have you noticed this kind of weird shift where it's like the, the so-called, the right is more anti-war than the so-called left even though i realize it's a fake liberals are not the left but yeah well i i I have realized this and i think um it has there's multiple factors going on that just happen to be kind of converging at the same time um i think well first of all historically speaking these kind of realignments do happen like this isn't completely unprecedented there are definitely historical times even just in american history where the right was more anti-interventionist than anyone else um i think what you're seeing is with the kind of shaking up of the Republican establishment, um, although Trump is obviously fake, he intensified the war in Yemen, you know, everything he said was fake, but the fact that that rhetoric was working, also, of course, Obama used that rhetoric too, and he also intensified even more than Trump did uh, military conflict. Uh, So people recognize that they can win on these issues. And I think in the right, they're actually returning to the old paleo-conservative tradition. And the paleocons uh, traditionally in foreign policy are very much kind of like anti uh, viewing ideological existential struggles and more just focused on national interest. Their worldview on foreign policy is actually very similar to mine. Uh, So I I, I really understand that. Um, 
And so I think there's more cachet there and they're going through that. I don't actually think that they understand foreign policy at all, though I just think they have realized oh, Obama won on like an anti-Bush platform and Trump won on an anti-Hillary platform. And this is a way to electoral success. But I don't for a million years, I'll never think that people like Tom Cotton and Marco Rubio will ever be anything but the most unhinged neocons in practice. But um that being said, I think there is a realignment going on here. And I think the reason it intersects with the things that I look at in the woke Imperium is specifically because everyone's foreign policy establishment is just following culture war trends. So they're seeing this as a way to own the libs. I actually met a conservative activist at a, um, at a uh, conference sponsored by Quincy back in November who was like, this is how I sell uh, restraint foreign policy to conservatives. I say it's it's how you own the libs, and I think <laughs> I think that's um, I think everyone kind of wants to own the libs, uh, even left uh, liberal people, uh, even if they don't admit that openly. And so there is this rhetorical shift towards that that the right is better at, just because Trump clearly was loathed by the establishment, so that gives him some cred for anti-establishment people that aren't really thinking, well, he is a billionaire, how anti-establishment could he be? But um, they're, they're, it leaves him some cred because the intelligence agencies hated him, the, the DC blob hated him. So they're, I think, in, in a way, way to understanding that they're no longer in power are kind of reacting against this. I mean, you've got these like kind of anti-FBI, maybe even anti-police uh, sentiment growing on the right wing, which is interesting to see. Uh, that certainly wouldn't have happened even in very recent history. But then you also have, because it's tied in with the culture war, this like the know nothing left, I think, says, well, the right is expressing these opinions. So we have to have the opposite opinions of them. And so it gets really easy to get folded into, well, if the right says maybe we shouldn't be you know, forking over enormous amounts of money to Ukraine, then the left has to say, actually, we should. And, and I think the liberal establishment, which I regard as basically at this point, as close to the political center as any of these factions, uh, the liberal establishment is really happy to play off this game. Um, they want to take as many people as they can to battle, you know, the bad orange man. And so they will weaponize intersectional rhetoric to say, well, the way we stand up for, the way we prevent other Trumps, the way we prevent cultural reactionaryism is by fighting it abroad. It's this very kind of anti-communist style of rhetoric <laughs> from the 1950s, but it repurposed to say, like, if you, if you don't fight Dugan over there, you'll have to fight uh, Bannon over here, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, this is the other the the thing about it, or, or or one of the aspects of about it that to me is is remarkable and kind of infuriating is that the in practice the I mean, it's decidedly unwoke and unenlightened what, what the U.S. is. I mean, the last ten years, the U.S. has made common cause with Nazis and with Al Qaeda in Syria, for example, and these are not progressive elements of society. <laughs> Uh, but that's, that's so where it's the like... anti-authoritarianism rhetoric comes in, right? This, this is the, the usefulness. Like, why have a specific ideological crusade if you can just crusade against anyone who has a political system different from liberal democracy? And so, oh, well, yeah, Al-Qaeda's bad, but that's just a handful of people. You know, meanwhile, Assad, you know, insert whatever, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's he's not elected. You know, the it's a very it's a weird kind of like millennial version of democratic like fukuyama exceptionalism yeah 
I mean that that's how I that's how I see it as a as kind of a rear guard because I feel like the empire is is because of forces that are out there international and, and world historic. I think that the U.S. hegemony is kind of crumbling, and that this is what they have sort of settled on, and it's kind of like an alternative Telos, um, which is a sort of upgraded version of the Fukuyama one, but it it doesn't it's it seems to be missing what at least made the Fukuyama one something that you could prop up for a second, which was the extreme power of the United States at that point in time. In this case, it, that isn't really the case. And this is a strange telos because it's not just, it's really like a, it's building on to the Fukuyama thing as far as liberal liberalism and, and free, you know, free markets being the end all be all. But it, then it adds to it like this, uh, these social social issues that are kind of hot buttons in the United States, but, but like not as important in places like Afghanistan by and large, where it's like, or entirely the, different. Cause it, the fact is different societies have different histories and history and geography shapes culture. And if those things are different, cultures are different. And so you have this weird attempt to impose North Atlantic values on everything. And there, there are critics of that and have been across the political spectrum, ref, left, right, and center. And I, um, those critics always get shunted aside by whatever the popular missionary ideology of the day was. So, you know, that was a right-wing neoconservatism when I was a kid. Um, now it's, it's this, like, left-wing social justice stuff. Uh, but in the end, it, this stuff is still always a missionary ideology. And missionary ideologies exist to spread. <laughs> they, they view their success as their ability to spread and convert other societies. And I think this is the problem because for diplomacy to actually function in a sustainable way that is understandable by the citizens of the country, it needs to be couched in terms of we are dealing with people who are governed differently than us, who are different than us. And therefore, the primary principle, in my opinion, should be sovereignty. It shouldn't be human rights. It shouldn't be uh, liberalism. It shouldn't be any of these things. It should be sovereignty, <laughs> period, end of story, because you're going to have to talk to people you don't like. Diplomacy would be easy if you only did it with your friends. But the fact of the matter is it's most important applications are with people who are not your friends. Yeah, I mean, sovereignty is the is the key here for international uh, uh, relations, and it's supposed to be what what it's built on. But this is like the one thing that the U.S. can never accept. When I was reading, uh, when I was in graduate school and reading IR papers, there was a, you read these articles by people talking about how sovereignty was outdated, you know, and this was, these were written in the 90s and 2000s. And this was, this seemed to me so clearly to be like the academic who has marching orders in some way. However, these kind of ideas are transmitted, sort of like the wokeism produces all these professional incentives that this was happening in graduate schools and professors and so they were like okay we need to actually because we're we're in a different era and like in the cold war they 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 dealt with the issue of the con the conflict between imperialism the imperial you know imperatives and the 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 democratic uh you know cover story with cover stories i mean with par with covert action with parapolitics right you just over you don't say sovereignty doesn't matter in iran in 1953 you just use secret service to overthrow the government. And then you say that the people rose up and put in the Shah, right? That was the way they handled it. But then by the nineties, you know, in the, in the two thousands, you have people writing about like, well, this sovereignty idea is outdated because what if rulers are bad and they're hurting people, 
you know, and this this is like this is an update of that. How, how do you think that this stuff filters to the? I mean, do you think it's just careerism, and then people people come to internalize it themselves? I mean, this is because, as you say, it's it, it does seem to be it had to be contrived by people specifically, at, you know, in high places or paid by people with lots of money to come up with justifications for imperialism. It's like the Christianizing the, the, the Indians when you're taking everything from them, that's the oldest one in the United States, and then helping the enslaved Africans is another. You know, there's like, as you say, this goes back, the, 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 the Spaniards, uh, when they came over to, the, to Mexico, Cortez and, and all of the conquistadors, they, they, they at least paid lip service to like bringing Christ to these people, right? So there's always... There's always some thing for imperialism. I mean, is how do you create it? How how do these incentives for the people who go into these fields operate? I mean, are, do you, how cynical do you think they are, and how much is it of it is just like they have to believe these things so they come to actually really believe them? I think it's a mixture of all of the above. Um, I, I think the reason this kind of is hard to diagnose specifically is because. There are all kinds of people. There are people that 100% believe this and believe this is the right thing to do. And not even for financial reasons. I think I, I think there are people like that. There are people who do it because it's trendy. I think that's probably the largest percentage. Um, just go with the flow. And there are people who are cynically calculating this as the new raison d'etre for uh, the kind of uh, next form of hyper-interventionist foreign policy. I think all of those things exist. I think all of those people come together. Every political coalition is a coalition of people who do disagree and whose motivations change. I say that even my own side uh, on the foreign policy spectrum. That, that's always true. And so trying to pin it down to one thing is very difficult. Now, of course, this didn't mean that I didn't try because about a third of the woke Imperium paper is actually a class analysis of what you might call the beltway lanyard and why they fall for these things. And I thought normally I write on grand strategy and geopolitics. Like I like to write about geography, history, ecology, uh, and how policymakers should or shouldn't use those things. Like, that's usually my thing. But to just talk about something like this, it became really necessary for me to dust off uh, my old kind of, <laughs> my older school, like, economic uh, domestic politics jobs, because I really had to write an entire section about um, where these people as a class, you know, what what many people, especially these days popularized by Catherine Liu, the professional managerial class, I really had to talk about them a lot because it's really important to understand these things. And I can't, even going through a whole subsection of the paper doing that, I still can't give you, this is the one thing that makes it all go. I really do think it's a big, messy coalition, just like our major political parties or anything like that. There's a lot going on. But the most important thing that I zero in on is the kind of, I think it's the elite overproduction element. I really do. I think that there's too many of these people and they're fighting for too few jobs. And so in order to prove what loyal soldiers they are, they have to show that either cynically that they can calculate as to what is the rhetoric of the day or less cynically show that they're the true believers willing to carry out the orders. And they just go through this, like, what do you want to hear? Like, we're all a bunch of uh, highly educated professional class people. <laughs> what are the, what's the lingo? Like, well, how are we talking about things? And that this becomes hyper competitive because there are too many of them fighting for too few spaces and too few promotion opportunities. And so they go 
on this again and again, and it almost radicalizes them, which is weird to talk about something that is like the neoliberal center, but but um, it, it radicalizes them, at least their performance or the issues that they want to emphasize. And this creates this kind of feedback loop of like, well, now we're going to get really hawkish on country X because, you know, <laughs> whatever, they have a policy that is like not affirming of sex workers or something. And it just like becomes more and more obscurantist and bizarre kind of like campus activism but it's happening in the government and it's really really strange and i don't um i don't honestly i think that this the way that this ends is the weirdest question of all because i do think the public has reached peak woke is my honest opinion like i don't think that there's much future growth in this market anymore regardless of your views on various causes and so this is going to have to pivot and so that uh, opens up to two questions what is the neoconservative ideology du jour of the future will it be related or will it be totally different it could be either it could be in reaction to this it could be really right wing we don't really know but also i think uh, the other question is, and this is a question I didn't really bring up in Woke Imperium, but I do bring up every time I have a talk about it because uh, it, it's something that the, the his, knowing the history of the boomers has put in my mind. Is this going to create a society moves away from this or moves to be more cynical towards these types of claims from powerful actors? Are we going to be left with this out of touch political class that still really adheres to this ideology anyway, even as the rest of society does not. Now, like I said, I think they're trend chasers. Eventually they'll change. This isn't a permanent thing, but are we going to have this really awkward situation where everyone rolls their eyes at like the, the, the intersectional empire and like the, the drone with the Black Lives Matter sticker on it, but yet the government still talks like this for at least a decade more and still like, what does that do? And, and <laughs> if anything, that'll probably just empower like the alt-right because it'll, it'll make people think that they're correct in their assumption of, of how the world works. But I think it, it's just a very strange situation. So then we're going to have this delayed action because of the elite overproduction. It's going to take longer for the PMC to change. And then when the PMC changes, what are they going to change to? Is it going to be defend Christendom from the heathen hordes? Is it going to be like angry marble bust statues screaming into the void? Uh, is it going to be like militarized Huntingtonianism? Like, I, I don't know, but it's that could happen too. And once again, the same principles will apply. And a lot of the PMC are going to jump on board, just like how how hipsters really like to go from ultra woke to like traditionalist Catholics at the drop of a hat. It's going to be like this weird uh, mass conversion of like the middle class as a uh, professional thing. And it, but it's going to be for the same purpose. It's going to be America's exceptional. America can and should do whatever it wants everywhere in the world all the time. And if we don't do it, actors worse than us will take power. And then that will be a net loss for insert totalistic ideology here which is an extremely, I would say, theocratic and religious way of viewing the world, which I personally do not like at all. I really think uh, state interest should be calculated on material basis, but that's just me. The trends here and the, 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 the way that this ideology has been accepted by people, um, the, the broad parts of society, and you, we want to go back and put it into context 
I look at the U.S. empire and this stuff seems, it seems an extension of things. I mean, of course you can trace it back even further to, like I, I was talking about earlier, just the conquistadors and the, you know, people at Jamestown, the pilgrims and all of this, right? Like, like these, these imperialist ventures that get, you know, wrapped in some sort of, you know, missionary, uh, uh, missionary veil or something. But when you look at the Cold War, it gets to where the the U.S. is trying to do this pretty early on. Now, did you ever read the book uh, Cold War Civil Rights? Yes. So that that book I think is pretty accurate. Which is and the the way it, thinking about that years after I read it, it's really like the civil rights era in the U.S. was a was a color revolution of sorts. In that, not in that it was like a ginned up thing, but it's like there were it was a regime in the South. But it it was causing problems for the United States. So the the media apparatus and the uh, U.S. government officials, the establishment sort of turns against it and starts actually publicizing these things in the media in a certain way and supporting activism in in different ways. But then you but you 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 learn later, you know, that people like Alan Dulles were for civil rights. You know, I mean, in a slow not Alan Dulles, but John Foster Dulles. I don't know what Alan Dulles thought, but John Foster Dulles, people in the Eisenhower, I mean, Eisenhower appointed um Earl Warren, you know, to the Supreme Court. Like these were this it's which seemed to be kind of an establishment way to get around the Senate because, you know, as much as they say otherwise, there are ways to like get for the establishment to get what it wants even with the ridiculous, you know, institutions in the United States. But so they, they, they attempt this as a because there were they want America's image to be this image of like, you know, enlightened policy and so on. And the racism looks bad. And so you want it you want it. You, you don't want these things highlighted. And then later in the 60s, you know, in the, you have people like Gloria Steinem and that kind of feminism being backed by the CIA. People like Tim Leary, who designed a, a personality test for the CIA, but then later and then later becomes this like LSD person. But the counterculture seemed to be kind of derailing the actual anti-war movement. And if you look back at some of those clips of like uh, Leary, he would say stuff like, "And eh, don't worry about politics. Politics is an old man's game. That's a, for old impotent men. You know, and it was like, just tune in and drop out. You know what I mean? It's like your headspace is like so important and you're being liberated in that realm is so important. And like all of these ways of kind of, distracting or at the very maybe distracting maybe covering up maybe gussying up uh, imperialism in different ways and it, this just seems to be like the latest iteration of, of this this sort of way of like but the material the material uh basis of this and the you know expansion of you know um exploitative system and maintenance of ex- of exploitative institutions this is seems to be the one thing that's like never changes. And so how do these, how is it that the people don't, you know, that are smart and educated, like they just don't get this. They just don't see how this is the latest version of this. And like, you know, we're occupying Syria and stealing their, their oil. It's outright right now. Like it's not, a, this isn't a woke crusade. Like, yeah. come on people. Like what, how does this, how do they, how, how does it, this history, these parallels, they, they echo, they rhyme, they just never stop. How do they? How is this kept from being recognized by people? Well, I think it's like everyone has a messy relationship with the state too. Like you know, the, the state can be incredibly progressive when it wants to be, 
uh, and when it's in its interest to do so. And that doesn't stop me from if the state does something I agree with, I'll, I'll support it. I'll say, well, you know, hey, cool. You know, like uh, in the past, that probably would have been like the, the, the nation uh, kind of uh, teaming up against the Southeast on civil rights. Like, hey, that's cool. I'm glad they did that. Uh, yeah. But I think because we all have this messy relationship, um, there's this tendency to say, well, because it did this cool thing in this one formative moment, then I'm just going to trust them to always do this cool thing. <laughs> and and I, I actually think that more compartmentalization is good. And, and I kind of feel that in the contemporary day and age, we have less compartmentalization and we have this kind of social media attitude where you have to like pick a tribe and just declare either for or against it 100%. But like, I'm like... <laughs> My personal politics are pretty left of liberal on most issues, and yet I've published with the American Conservative multiple times. <laughs> like, I don't care. Like, if I've got something to talk to someone about, I've got something to talk with someone about. If we agree that we don't like hyper-interventionist foreign policy, then we agree on that. And, and, and the, that is a separate issue from other issues. So why should my opinion or someone else's opinion on abortion affect our ability to discuss that. But I think there is a general trend, and I think the government figured this out a long time ago, that the more you can super get people to not compartmentalize and to, to just universally be tribalistic on ideological grounds, the less commonality they will see on individual issues, which makes it easier to divide and rule. And divide and rule, of course, is the oldest <laughs> tactic in the book, going back before probably we even had writing. So. Um, I think that's a big part of it. I think it's it's the ability because you hear a lot of that. You hear people say social media is making everyone like hyper tribal, and I but I think they're kind of missing the real danger there. I think that like a true tribe, like anthropologically speaking, is almost like a proto state, and it, it can be and should be, in my opinion, very Machiavellian and say, oh well, now we're going to team up with this other tribe against our common foe. Oh, situation changed. Now we're going to switch again. We're going to. Like, that's the kind of flexibility that an actual tribe would have. I think now we have the tribes, quote-unquote, the people are loyal to via social media, via you know, neoliberalism, are these idealist tribes. Like, they're, they're not towards a geography, ecology, or even a state interest. They're, they're towards, like, these extremely signally principles and that, that are just used to sabotage any kind of solidarity across ideological lines about hard policy. And that's a problem. And then when you have this, and uh, I focus a lot uh, in Woke Imperium when I'm talking about the PMC on academics in particular, because I think that they're actually the most vulnerable <laughs> towards this kind of uh, indoctrination, if you will. And you see a lot of this, like, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, uh, given how, uh, what I know of your views that you, like me, are probably quite the Russiagate skeptic, right? I think a lot of critical thinking... Right away, right away, I was yeah, like, I don't, I don't buy this right away, this is bullshit. They're like, look, notice how they're not showing us the evidence, they're just telling us intelligence sources say... Trust us, guys. They're, trust they're us. basically saying, the biggest liars in the world are, are telling us this is true. Yeah. You know, you, you, you should believe it. Like that, automatically, people should have been like, no. Yeah, but who, who were the classes of people that believed it the most proportionally speaking? It was academics and journalists who are supposed to be like the harbingers of critical thought. And I think the reason for this is because they're the people that are very, very vulnerable to this type of like, well, you don't want to be like those other people. Like you may disagree with X, Y, and Z group on this, but don't emphasize that because do you, do you want to agree with someone who's racist on some issue that has nothing to do with racism. It's, it's this very, like, I think, it, and, and academics are, 
the most elite overproduced class I think our society has ever made. And and they're all fighting for these usually like dismal, precarious, low paying jobs just to even get their foot in the door. And yeah. I, I, I'm not saying this to make fun of them because A, I am an ex-academic and B, I think academics provide a valuable service. Like someone's got to go deep dive into important, complicated topics. But the way that it's structurally organized, the way university um, administration works um, has made them hyper competitive. And it's made them therefore way more vulnerable, same with journalists, by the way, to peer pressure. And therefore they have become these fountains of what should be ideally uh, creative thinking people. They've become like the most toe the line people and they all fell. The reason I brought up Russiagate is this because like these are the kinds of people who should have been at the front line saying like, you know, you can hate Trump. You know, it's perfectly logical to hate Trump, but but Russiagate is BS. They should have been there. And yet these were the people that closed ranks and they said this is absolutely true. You know, Russiagate is true because Trump is bad. What was the, the logic behind it? And and not that, you know, the, the most winnable presidential campaign, most well-funded presidential campaign in human history completely blew an election because they ran a terrible candidate who everyone hated. No, it couldn't be that. It had they knew they knew she was hated beforehand. The the data was there. Even the and the political scientists people are slaves to data. Like this is you know, they got no they have no excuse. Yeah, and she specifically, by the way, like the one properly empirical study I've seen on the twenty sixteen election um, is the one that showed that the swing states that should, quote unquote, should have stayed blue and turned red um, were the ones with the highest percentage of combat casualties in the war on terror, and particularly the, the, the counties that flipped. And so not only was it that Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate, um, but it was like Trump ran an anti-interventionist campaign, even if it was BS, he ran it. And Hillary Clinton was a warmonger, is a warmonger. It's a core aspect of her being. Um, it's the only thing she truly believes in. <laughs> yeah, and, not just that. Not just that. It's a double. I think it's a double thing because those places that have the high, the higher levels of casualties, I, I believe they have to be. They have to be pretty much correlating to the places that are most devastated by like NAFTA, free trade, all yes. that stuff. So it's Absolutely. like. These are these are like actual real world concerns for people. They don't have a they don't have a good outlet for them. So they they went with the guy who just said the establishment sucks and it's all fake news. Yeah. They went with the clown because the clown was the only option yeah. available, I think. Yeah, or, exactly. or or a lot of people just stayed home like the A lot of these people the from these Democrats same states just, and these same regions, they were also people who who maybe were apolitical or maybe even lean conservative before 2008 and voted for Obama for the same reason. And, and yet, yeah, change, this, change you can believe in. Exactly. And, and both Obama and Trump were change candidates and both weren't actually change presidents, but, but both were change candidates. And there has been no reckoning with the establishment about what this means because they're like, oh, well, are you excusing, you know, like the, the attitudes of this rural person from central Pennsylvania or are you? And, and they just throw in these identity politics things and these buzzwords for this reason, to prevent people from being like, oh, well, I might like policy X, but I don't like policy Y. They say, no, you have to say it's all bad, which makes it impossible to critique the actual policy that the bipartisan establishment constantly engages in. And that's yeah. the problem. And that's what protects it. And then you've got, and this isn't just in America, where, I mean, obviously we're using this 
electoral analogy because it came to mind, but like I actually think if anything, the woke imperium might be more advanced in the United Kingdom, the, the country I formerly lived in uh, for, for a large chunk of my adult life than it is here because they have this added level of <laughs> like not being connected to the realities that like it's American power that creates what they live in and they still want to believe this they have a term for it it's called punching above their weight that they're like still like a world power or whatever <laughs> which is not true um <laughs> and um so they're kind of more divorced and they and they also are more immune from the, the blowback to it so they they've adopted like a really odd like um in international relations, which is, you know, I got both my IR degrees in the United Kingdom. So this is something I know from the inside. Uh, it's not like it's taught here. Like in the U.S., it's taught like it's realists versus liberals and, and usually very sloppy and <laughs> uh, 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 kind of roughshod version of that. But it, it's kind of more true to what our political system is than in how the U.K. teaches it, which is the U.K. is just overrun with postmodernists and constructivists everywhere. And and realists are a rarity, and they tend to be like from Mediterranean countries, and and they tend to be like like actually pretty left wing, contrary to the stereotype in America. Um, and they're kind of focused on like you know sovereignty and like uh, bucking the trends of like neoliberalism. Um, but um, in in the UK, it's it's so postmodern and constructivist and it's so like well what about identity and what about uh how how do people feel about this and and in the way this makes them better media critics because they often focus on like how the media talks about foreign affairs but in every other way it just creates the image that these are all just like ideas and we're like pushing them around in the playpen and, and we can just consciously oh just choose to well we'll, we'll do with this idea now we'll, well we won't do with that idea now and this creates this very i think their ir academic are even stranger than ours and uh, the one i specifically mentioned in woke imperium though i only briefly because I, I didn't want to get hung up on it is mary caldor who who is just such an absolutely bizarre um <laughs> figure in the study of international relations she rose to fame by studying small wars and it like small kind of um state failure wars in africa and she she, what she tries to do is say, like, we need to come up with a version of Kantian liberal cosmopolitanism to stop, like, tribal African wars. <laughs> it's a very, very bizarre and very, like, Victorian, like, uh, white woman's burden type of uh, thing. But her thing now, since the withdrawal of Afghan from Afghanistan, it totally, like, messed her up. So her whole thing now, her proposal, and this is so unhinged, I, I haven't even seen an American version of this yet. I'm sure it's coming. Um is that they should you should use the Kabul airport model uh, as like a kind of she doesn't say this I say this when I'm critiquing her but she doesn't say this but as a kind of like Chinese treaty port system from the 19th century where like the NATO or whatever will control airports in conflict zones so they could evacuate like endangered and minority populations to safer countries now i'm all for people wanting to escape their hellhole and live their true life you know <laughs> but i have to say what would it take logistically i mean first of all the expense the logistical expense of this is off the chart second of all to, for this to work you need to be able to defend the airport which means you need to be able to defend a geographic tiny geographic point surrounded by enemy territory uh which then in turn means that you need control over a foreign country's airspace 
to do this, which then in turn, much like the treaty port system or the railway concession system in 19th century China, means that if anyone messes with your little territory, then you have to respond because it's precarious, right? Yeah. This is the exact same thing. In an article I wrote for the National Interest, I actually talked about how stuff like this is used um, to to create false flag attacks to justify war. And and the biggest example of this- Like Guantanamo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and for me, the most obvious example of what would happen if we had this neo-colonial treaty port system that Mary Calvor wants in Afghanistan, which, by the way, remember that ISIS set off a bomb and killed like a 20 soldiers. <laughs> like, this is, this is not an easy thing to do, even if you support it. But the most obvious example of the kind of stuff that would happen if we did this to me uh, would be like the Kwantung army staging a, a bomb attack on the Manchurian railway and then saying, and then invading Manchuria. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, the, the Mukden, the Mukden incident, right? Uh, yeah. The Mukden. There's like a picture of the dudes, I think even. There's yeah. Like a yeah. No, they, they, they we're half-assing it the whole way. And, and they just knew, cause it, it doesn't matter. It, they just, they still invaded. They, well, that was the point. They, they, it was the Kwantung army did it independently of the government. The government didn't even know what was going to happen. And, so, and then it happened and they're like, well, we can't withdraw the troops because they're winning. And then we'll look like blisses. And so it just you had to go through with it. They forced the hand because at that point, the army was the most powerful faction in the government. And that's what I would worry about if we had this humanitarian Mary Caldor treaty port system. It would just be like, well, then what happens when something goes wrong? You know, what happens when even ignoring the fact that logistically it would be a nightmare, it, that, that you would still be invading a country's territory through the air. You'd be doing the, the Berlin airlift forever, except forever. it would be even further away. <laughs> it's insane. Like, like yeah, but you got to establish the, the, the beachhead, except it's in the middle of, the, of, a, of a bunch of mountains. Just, you just need to napalm maybe a, an eight-mile radius outside the airport. Just, just incinerate every living thing there in the first place so we can put in our humanitarian station. And then, uh, you know, deploy some Trident missiles or whatever and, uh, uh, you know, and, and a bunch of anti-air defenses for, to shoot down any of their aircraft. Maybe probably should just shoot down any aircraft that they launch from the entire country. Of course. Just yeah. to make sure you maintain airspace for your humanitarian mission. Yeah, because your position is so precarious <laughs> that well, you would have to do that or else you'd be in deep danger. And the absolute best case scenario for this, and this is really pushing it. <laughs> would be like you end up with something like Spain's enclaves in Morocco. But even then, like Setua and Melilla or whatever they're called, like those are surrounded by multiple walls of barbed wire fencing. People cannot freely travel in and out of them. And they're on the coast still, right? So at least they can be supplied by sea. If you're talking about something like Afghanistan, how the like, I don't, this is a critique of mine. It slightly gets off topic from the woke period, but I feel right here it's intersecting. My biggest critique of U.S. foreign policy, of all of my many critiques, is that we have been the most powerful country in the world, in the history of the world, for a long enough time period that people now just conflate the U.S. with the universal empire. Like, it, it just it's the standard setter, it's whatever. And that obviously has many problems. But one major problem I think people overlook, but as someone who's really into geopolitics, I cannot overlook, is that I think that once you conflate it with the universal empire ideologically, you begin to think that way geographically as well. And I'm like, this is... <laughs> This is insane because, like, can you read a map? Like, this is the first and foremost thing. Like, the idea of the U.S. nation building a landlocked country, mountainous country, in the middle of Eurasia, which is Afghanistan, 
is the most farcical thing I've ever heard of. It just makes no sense that you would ever want a long-term presence, no matter what you think about the war or like whatever. Like it just makes no sense that you would have a long-term presence in a country on another continent that doesn't have a deep water port. Like to me, that's just nuts. But it was geopolitical. I mean, it's right in between Iran, China, and and Russia, uh, and, and the Middle East. So it's like you, I yes. think that 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 has to be why. I mean, they were planning. They had a plan on. They met on September fourth, to two thousand and one, to discuss political military plans for Afghanistan. But the head of their their main man, Massoud, was totally against the U.S. ever being involved there. Well, he gets assassinated on September ninth. September 10th, they have another meeting about military plans for Afghanistan, and then September 11th happens, and then we're there for 20 years. Yeah. And they refuse to let bin Laden be extradited for any kind of international tribunal system. Like, the Taliban actually wanted a way to hand him over that would not be going against, like, Islamic customs and, su- and such. So, like, there's huge, there are geopolitical reasons. It's just that they're kind of crackpot and insane. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can see the way that it, that it played out. But it's like, the, the, the more you look at the whole thing, that's to take all, you see the logic of it, which is insane and evil, but it is geopolitical. And it's not a, it's not a construct, it, it's not really in the realm of constructivism. It's kind of no. in the realm of crackpot realism. It is. So, but these, uh, but these people get paid. I guess they get paid to, to not to to avoid seeing it that way at all costs. Right. Well, the thing is, there's always going to be money to be made in any intervention, no matter where it is, no matter what it is, and and, and that is always going to mean that there's always money available to signal bolster people who want to justify it on other grounds. That's not a debate. There's also people who I think are gravely mistaken who think that the more places you are in, the less places your rivals are in, and therefore the stronger your position is. I, I think this is just historically false and wrong. I, I think it actually weakens you. It makes it overextension is the number one cause of imperial decline in history. So uh, the neocons are actually the number one anti-imperialists in a weird way. In, in the they're, they're the accel- uh, they're the accelerationists. They, they really are. Um, uh, to me, like my first and foremost, though, like it, it's like yes, I am very anti-neoconservatism, but but even more importantly to me is like, if something is bad strategy, it's bad strategy. And you might say, well, like, isn't it great that we can have a forever war in between all of our rivals? And I would say like, this is like building a fort surrounded by enemies on all sides and disconnected from any of your logistical networks. And and I just think that's dumb, like regardless of any of the other differences I have with it. But I mean, do you think that they? I think that they expected things to go differently, though. I just feel like the 21st century is they had these bold plans, and it really was like rollback on steroids. I mean, I think actually that's what's happened. You know, I want to do a sequel to American Exception and just pick up with Reagan, but I, I think it what really the 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 Watergate. What really happened with Watergate was a realignment of American politics. Both parties moved to the right. And a, a sort of neoconservative and liberal, um, you know, capitalist oligarch uh, ascendancy that wiped out any progressive elements in the U.S. foreign policy that were still left over from the New Deal and the post-war era, right? And so it was all rollback. And you look at it and like what, like the rollback people were considered nuts in the '50s, but they ultimately seemed to prevail 
with this new dollar regime in the, that gets worked out in the 70s and 80s. And then they go in, they, you know, eventually they, the Soviet Union gets brought down partly because of the, the, they took on debt and then the U.S. and the, and the Gulf states crashed the oil prices, you know, and that really damaged the, the Russia and led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, there's, there's more going on, but like this, it was part of a strategy of these rollback people. And then they expand NATO. They try to go into the, they go into the Balkans, they go into Central Asia, they go into Azerbaijan using Al Qaeda types again. Uh, they, you know, they do, it's like, you can see how they're just trying to circle Eurasia during this whole time period. And Afghanistan was a part of that, that whole strategy. Uh, and now it's, they've, but it's, it, it is, as you say, it's expansion and it, it uh, of a, of a it's imperial overexpansion, and it's they, they failed. They failed in, in Iraq. They failed. So the original war on terror with Afghanistan and Iraq, those were failures. The Arab Spring Wars were failures. Uh, this, I think, the Ukraine thing is not going to be turned. The only way it's going to be turned around is if with nuclear Armageddon. So this is the, a failure, and it may be the one that actually triggers the, you know, a real serious realignment that uh, it, it is coming. And these are these are so, but these the people that you're, you're we're even talking about people that look at Afghanistan and try to like put it into humanitarian you know, uh, put it in a humanitarian frame, but this is it, it's where do they, where do you think that they go from here at this time period because they've, this has to be a bit of a crisis for them well, as think, things think, go badly in Afghanistan, badly in Ukraine, and we have a position in Syria, but it's like preposterous. So where do they where do where do you see this going? I think, um, I think that the use of the humanitarian to the expansionist is obvious because the humanitarian, even more than the regular neocon, is truly free to ignore considerations like sustainability and geography and therefore can be used whatever. I think what we're also seeing is a lot of people like the Beltway Bandit class, the defense contractors for private profit, have realized that, you know, they don't give a shit about any of this as long as the interventions are occurring, they're making money. So I think what you have is you have one faction of the government that is just really pillaging the treasure ship as it sinks, <laughs> if you will. Uh, and then other factions of the government, some more intelligently and some less intelligently, see, say maybe we should plug the holes and have this ship not sink anymore. I think that that battle is internally playing out inside the Biden administration, which is why there's some weird incoherent things that go back and forth there. Though I have to say personally, I was, I've was i never been a fan of Joe Biden. I didn't even vote for him in, in uh, 2020. He's been a lot less terrible than I thought he would be. And I think one of the reasons for that is because there is just a lot of internal divisiveness uh, going on right now about what to do. And, and he is both kind of a, he's clearly past his prime to put it politely but, <laughs> but his same, prime was never so spectacular to begin with his prime, in his prime was not like a force to be you know well he, yeah but his, his prime was worse because his prime he was a dedicated diehard neoliberal he could really do some shitty things he, he really like, is at his best now he just wants to like quote unquote get stuff done and to my surprise in some ways he kind of is and so uh, it, it's interesting to me i because i don't think I, I think the government is just fracturing internally, honestly, and, and does not know what to do about this. And I think there are people that see the wisdom of drawing back the interventionism and, and, and stopping the ridiculous quest to dominate the planet, which, by the way, the only time that really would have worked 
was in the immediate post-war time period if the Soviet Union had collapsed then, because it was half of the world's economy was in the United States, over half of its industrial output. That was the time to do it. But these people, the, 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 the hubris of the capitalist class and the offshoring that they took part in has actually now greatly strengthened a lot of the rest of the world. And so there are far less, it's, the United States is still unquestionably, in my opinion, the most powerful state in the world, but it's, it is, its lead is so shrunk compared to how it used to be, uh, particularly 20, 25 years ago, that it's, and this is the problem. This is the problem is that there is, especially amongst like the boomer elite and they're kind of like, uh, indoctrinated younger people like uh mayo pete uh you know <laughs> they have this world view that is still beholden to the 1990s and this is getting more and more dangerous even as america itself becomes less dangerous to other countries it becomes more and more dangerous because they want to lash out and reassert this but this the the economic data proves that that time has passed that time has long since passed and the U.S. would actually be a far more strong and stable and, I think, secure um, in the number one slot, by the way, country, if it actually pulled out of a lot of its unnecessary permanent alliances and, and permanent occupations and redirected the money that there into infrastructure, green technology, hell, even NASA, uh, back here at home, I think it, it actually the U.S. position speaking here to, to nationalists and patriots, would be way stronger. It would, it would be a far more stronger and stable society. But there is so much money to be made uh, in endless war. And, and there, there are also is a class that ideologically supports that, not just because they're paid to, though many of them do, but, but also because they believe that if we're not there, someone else is there, and therefore who will look after X, Y, and Z group. This is where the Woke Empirium comes in. There's just enough of these lobbyists that are involved that just they would rather see the whole thing either go down or they just live in complete denial that it will go down than to have to deal with the fact that maybe the country would actually be better off if it was a less interventionist, more normal country that simply said, look, we have the greatest geopolitical position on earth. We really do. Uh, the, the amount of resources that we have, the security, our distance from pure competitors, that's the most important thing. Literally the only thing the U.S. needs to be strong and secure and not threatened is a powerful Navy. That's it. it. Because of our location, because of everything else, that's all we need. We just need a really powerful Navy in the Atlantic and the Pacific. Boom, done. Uh, but no, there's this whole thing that we have to dominate every single aspect of the globe. But we are not strong enough to do that. And so that creates this very, very dangerous and incoherent thing and this desperate quest for rationales to keep, even when people see we can't even win wars anymore again and again and again, and they ask why that is. And they say, oh, no, 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 that's not the real question. The real question is, like, do you want the, the other people to have their way? And it's like, well, inevitably they are. In, in certain regions, politics is getting regional again. There's another um, report on the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy's website that I'm a co-author on called the Middle Powers Project. And it's talking about the coming multipolarity. And um, I think it actually is a good companion piece to Woke Imperia, even though the topics are totally different, because it's all about how the U.S. is unprepared to deal with the multipolar world. And a lot of this is because ideologically it has spent too much time just assuming that that is an impossibility, that, that there couldn't be other states that are powerful, there couldn't be other states that do their own thing. That they, And the biggest thing about the Middle Powers Project that a lot of people aren't talking about 
is that I think there's a commentary, even amongst the anti-establishment people on the left and right, I think there's a commentary that says that multipolarity means the Cold War comes back. I really don't think that's true. Or, you know, it's U.S. versus China or even U.S., China, Russia, like in the 70s. Like, no, I don't think that's true at all. I, I think it's actually even more different than how anyone sees it. I think the true thing is that smaller countries are more powerful now. Uh, this is why middle powers matter. And, and so it's not just, oh, China's going to eat America's lunch. I actually think uh, the U.S. and China will compete as peer competitors. Absolutely. But they, that's everything has been designed to never let that happen. Like that's what they don't. Failing. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But you're saying that there's a lot of money to be made in war, and I think that that's only a part of it, and maybe a smaller part. What I see as the big danger or the big the, the big looming crisis is that the, the the wars do serve a purpose, and the, the the attempts to military or paramilitarily change other you know do regime changes and such is to maintain a certain political economy with, you know, the, the dollar and other institutions holding sway uh, so that the U.S. can structurally dominate other countries. Structural the, the main violence that the U.S. perpetrates isn't even really bombs when you look at the deaths, the death counts and such. It's the structural violence. Uh, yeah, and the, sanctions, and, Well, and, and just the, you know, the indebting of the African continent you know, in U.S. dollars to ba to intentionally suck up the surplus of their economy. I mean, this was like Frank um, Michael Hudson was tasked with doing research on this in the 70s by um, Chase Manhattan Bank to basically see how much debt could these countries take on. And they and like that is the, the way that they, they operate. And what the to me, the Chinese threat isn't so much military because, I mean, we can both nuke each other. There's really you can only get you once you get to the point that you can blow up the world. That's that that about settles that. But the real threat is that they have they can they're, they they talk about win win foreign policy just conducting foreign policy with countries. They're, it's not a battle between systems anymore because China is explicitly saying we don't want, we're not there to change your system. We're there to cooperate and work with you. China, in a way, is saying what Henry Wallace was saying, uh, but you know, with a century of the common man, more or less, like let's cooperate and work together in the world uh, and do business and prosper. I mean, they people talk about how disingenuous they might be, and okay, who I'm sure that there are people who are self interested there, but like the U.S., the liberal, the U.S. has to just lie constantly about what the system is and what they want. They call it the liberal rules based international order, right? But that really just means the dictatorship, the global dictatorship of the United States. I mean, this is where this is where. I think that the material basis of it, as it crumbles and other countries can actually just start to do business, and maybe we'll even see countries being like, you know what, we're going to default on this debt, and we're just not going to pay it, so especially with what's happening in, in Europe with energy prices and so on, like, and then China is, can just do business with these countries. Like, this whole superstructure that they've built up is this parasitic thing, and I think that that's what feeds the, the think tank industry. It feeds everything. It allows the U.S. to live in this world of unreality where you and we were we're basically taking our smartest people and make it requiring them to believe stupid things if they want to to profess or, or, or progress professionally. We're like intentionally stupefying uh, our entire country uh, because it, because para, the the empire is the uh, the the main focus of everything. It's the non-negotiable, sacrosanct, you know, imperative. And so now we're, as this crumbles, we're going to be like, oh man, like here we're in this bad situation and 
all of our whole our country is is a country of kind of where our, our smart people are actually the most the biggest idiots of all. I mean, this it seems like we're in for such a reckoning. Uh, as this, because the material thing is is the key, and it's fading. Absolutely, this is the problem. Like the, the Chinese, I one hundred percent do believe the Chinese, like every other country, are a self interested, cynical actor, and I respect that about them. <laughs> That's not a criticism. Um, their their concept of a sovereignty first diplomacy based around mutual interests is the kind of diplomacy I would like to see more of in the United States. Um, the the thing I think in a head to head matchup. The U.S. elite is operating in a huge disadvantage because so much of it believes its own BS and is is unable to be as flexible as the Chinese can be. Uh, that being said, the U.S. has certain entrenched and I would say mostly uh, geographic kind of advantages over China that, that I still give it the edge for the time being. But I think what neither of those countries is quite prepared to, or but particularly the U.S. with its exceptionalist worldview, is that it's not just it's not going to be them. It's going to be every region is going to have regional powers who in that particular region are more powerful than the superpowers like yeah you might look at the us and turkey and say those countries aren't remotely uh equivalent to each other but we're we are if we're not already at that point we will be soon where if turkey doesn't want the us in the middle east turkey can tell the us to go and if, and if the us says no we're going to stay it could be a real trouble because for every one to three reaper drones you have there could be 25 Bayraktar drones and they're going to be logistically based right there and if they want you out, they'll be out. Same thing with Iran, by the way. If, if Iran is going to reach the point, I actually think in, a, in an asymmetric war, Iran would probably manhandle the U.S. Uh, the, the way things are, if it was specific to the region. So, yeah, you're going to see these countries who aren't global powers. They're not superpowers. This is what the Middle Powers Project is about. So I, I think people should definitely check it out. But like, you're going to see countries that have this really strong regional grounding. They can really perform extremely well in that region and aren't wasting their time trying to do the same thing elsewhere. They just care about their immediate neighborhood. Now, how is a country that views the entire world as its immediate neighborhood going to possibly deal with this if it continues to have this worldview that it dictates everything? And if anything, this worldview will lead it to ruin. And it's it's going to be it's it's incredibly dangerous and it's incredibly freaky to me. And it really makes me want to look at not just on the financial incentives and not just in the complacency, the kind of complacency of all the assumptions people have had since the 60s, if not before, on how things work. But it also makes me like really look at the long-term form of this. Like, is there something particular to the Anglo-American character that kind of feels this? Because the British Empire went through things like this too. There's still British people to this day that still think they're <laughs> their great empire. Like, what is this? And I think, and this ties into the woke Imperium directly, I think that there, the ideological element of it is a bit longer form than many people think. When I look at how uh, weaponized social justice is used in establishment discourse, and it reminds me of how stuff was, how the Bush administration talked, how the Carter administration talked, it goes further back than that. I, I honestly think uh, this is, like, look at the countries that tend to, believe this it's not just english-speaking countries though it's predominantly that it's like north sea countries it's like germanic countries and it's really hard to escape the conclusion that this is protestantism right like this is like we're so culturally indoctrinated towards like the puritan experiment of concept of show your virtue by what you believe not the results of what you do that this kind of infects everything and i would say it infects left right and center ideologically speaking i think everyone just has this maximalist moralist worldview 
And that is a very much part of the American exceptionalist character. And it's very easy to weaponize the population, therefore, to support new forms of American exceptionalism, because you can always say, don't you want to be on the, my least favorite quote of all time, right side of history? And that's the thing. You've got to signal that you're on the right side of history. You've got to show your inner virtue. Of course, you know, my background is in history, and I have to say, I don't think there is such a thing as the right side of history, and I certainly wouldn't trust it if some, you know, person uh, represented some major powerful en entity was to tell me what it was, even if I did believe that there was such a thing. So it, I think that this is a complex that just makes it easier to talk people into this stuff, right? And therefore, and the easier they are to talk into it, the harder it is to deprogram the discourse, particularly, I think, in the media. Like, I, I found out in my time with the realism and restraint community, I used to think, like, oh, my number one enemy is, is, is politicians, right? It's politicians, maybe it's, like, CEOs. I, I increasingly am come to the opinion that I think journalists are my number one enemy because <laughs> it's just to even get through that, right? To get through, like, the, the midwit who thinks that they know about all these topics but is really just kind of stenographying them um, to get through like all the layers of indoctrination that prevent them from critically reappraising things is really, really difficult. And that's the first thing that's got to be done to even break it into the public consciousness. Yeah, the media is a part of the regime. Uh, it's so obvious at this point. I mean, even, uh, even your supposedly left-wing outlets like Mother Jones and Democracy Now! and The Nation are, you'll find things like, okay, that's that that's pretty much totally in line with like CIA compatible left, you know, uh, positioning and all this. So it's like, they really are, they are the enemy, uh, or, or they're the, they're a part of the regime. They're a part of this top down, you know, apparatus and top down is just a synonym for dictatorship. And, you know, which is that we have, we live in a dictatorship of sorts. Uh, and, uh, so it's, it, but we have we have weird spaces to be free at the same time, and we got to take as much advantage of them as we can. Uh, where where can people read your work? Uh, yeah, so I'm um, a lot of my professional work now is at the um, the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, which is my primary thing in this field. Um, but I also I've written in a bunch of different places. So uh, rather than have to you know go through all the places I've published them. Uh, I tend to compile everything on my personal blog. Uh, so I, it's like half online resume, half everything that I wouldn't publish externally, which means it's very informal. Don't expect that that's anything like the, the stuff I, I publish uh, otherwise. And, and sometimes it's not on these topics either. But I have a personal site. It's called GeoTrickster, one word. There's nothing else with that name, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. Um, and it has my personal stuff on the main page, but there's a publication side tab that will list and have links to everything I have that is externally linked. Um, so it's a it's a one-stop shop that includes like op-eds, uh, official paper studies, um, um, interviews, what have you. So everything should be there. Um, and it's officially geopolitically oriented, but you know, don't be surprised if there's some stuff with this too. <laughs> Great. Well, I really recommend the paper, um, the Woke Imperium, and I will link to it in the show notes. And uh, I just want to thank you very much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Please check out Christopher Mott's article that we have been discussing. 
Woke Imperium, the coming confluence between social justice and neoconservatism. We will link to it in the show notes, and we'll also link to Chris's Twitter profile, as well as his personal website, geotrickster.com. These imperial liberals are crazy to me. Lance DeHaven Smith summed it up pretty well when he said to me that the ultimate goal of neoliberal identity politics is to create a society where any person, regardless of their race, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, or disability status, could have a fair chance to rise to a position from which to exploit and dominate the rest of society. Maybe that's the Obamified version of MLK's dream. Thanks to Dana Chavari for engineering the audio, Seamus McGinnis for the episode art, and Mark Orange for the music. And thanks to you for helping us chase the light. Chase the light.